Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Just a minute. Hello, kid. I-, I mean, pretty. Oh, you're not. You're you're not Claude. No, no, I'm his roommate. Yes, I'm his roommate. That's it. Oh, I have a date with him tonight for dinner. You must be Sarah. Well, do come in. I'm afraid he may be late. Yes, quite late indeed. Maybe I should just reschedule. Don't take this the wrong way, but you're rather... scary. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. It is? You could, of course, go, but I did just get a shipment of delicious wines from Wink, and there's a roast ready to come out of the oven. It would be a shame to let him, I mean, it go to waste. Wine from Wink? Oh, isn't Wink the company that makes exploring new wines fun and easy? With delicious wines based on your taste delivered right to your doorstep every month? Yes, here, I'll take your coat. As Claude would no doubt tell you if he was here, it is all too easy to go to the store and get sucked into trying to find the perfect wine. But it's so much easier to let Wink ship wine right to your door that's perfectly matched to your tastes. Like I do. Oh, that sounds complicated. How would they know what I like? Here you are. Thank you. Oh my, that is good. I'll tell you. I've known my share of soothsayers and fortune tellers, but none of them are as good as the mystical wine experts at Wink. You just take Wink's palate profile quiz on their website with simple questions like, how do you take your coffee? And how do you feel about blueberries? And somehow they're able to consult with the spirits in the great beyond or something like that and predict exactly which wines you'll love. That sounds great. And I like that they deliver right to your door. But what if I don't like a wine they pick for me? I hate to pay the shipping to my house and get stuck with something I don't like. Well, shipping is covered, and in the unlikely event that you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love. No questions asked. Sounds like I can't go wrong. Say, can I have a refill? I have to say, that was a delicious meal, and the wine was the best part. Yes, too bad Paul Claude never showed up. <laughs> Who? Uh, uh, no one. Say, now that we've finished dinner and the wine is all gone, maybe it's time for my dessert. And what would you like for dessert? Mm, something wicked. Oh, my! (laughs) Even if you don't know a thing about wine, like the difference between unoaked and Finnish, or what a tannin is, Wink is the perfect wine club for you, because they do all the work, matching wines to you based on your taste. Discover great wine today! Go to trywink.com slash wicked library and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash wicked library for $20 off. Trywink.com slash wicked library. <laughs> that was Nicole Goodnight, Nelson W. Piles, and yours truly. Big thanks to Nicole for taking part in the show today. You'll hear her again later on. 
This is Daniel Foytek, and welcome to episode number 808 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our new Patreon and direct supporters. This episode would not be possible without them. If you enjoy this show and you want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon. Not only do all of our patrons get a completely ad-free show, they also get the highest quality version of the show, access to our archives with the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and depending upon the level of support, you'll get to hear our bonus stories before the free listeners. And we've added something brand new this season. At the $10 a month and above level, you'll get to hear our brand new show, The Private Collector. Episode three is coming out this month, so you still have time to become a private collector yourself. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library to become a friend of the wicked library and, of course, a friend of the librarian. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for season nine and beyond, and we need your help to do that. Also, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show. And of course, we love hearing how and why you listen to the wicked tales we share. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting the show and the contributors. Today's episode features a story by Lindsay Beth Goddard, Out with the Old. And I'll tell you, not only do we have Nicole Goodnight showing up a couple of times in today's episode, but helping me tell today's main story, Mary Murphy, a new voice to the show. Mary's very talented. You're going to be hearing a lot of her coming up. And I'm really excited about this. Our good friend over at the No Sleep Podcast, David Cummings, is voicing a character in today's story. So excited to have David on the show. David's a great guy, puts together a great show over at the No Sleep Podcast, and uh, we've wanted to work with David for a long time, so we're excited that we had a role for him today. Even though it's a small part, it was really nice of David to agree to be in today's story. So today, Mary Murphy, David Cummings, Nicole Goodnight, yours truly, and of course, a beautiful custom score by our good friend from We Talk of Dreams, Nico. And Nico did a lot of hard work to get this done in time. I was sick for about a week and a half, and so everything kind of fell behind. But Nico pulled through and got that score done very quickly. Fantastic. I think you're really going to enjoy the music and the story itself. Without further ado, let's get wicked. Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Out with the Old by Lindsay Goddard The body of Maxine Fisher's geriatric ex-husband stared blankly at the night sky. It had long ago bled out, thick pools of crimson liquid congealing on the ground as experts gathered information. A crime scene photographer circled the body, snapping pictures as rigor mortis stiffened its features. Maxine had to look away when a mosquito landed on the white-chapped lips, searching fruitlessly for blood. 
Ms. Fisher, Deputy Jones said. He stood at least a foot shorter than Maxine, a curious puppy at her heels, his dark, eager eyes always searching for a clue. Is there anything else? Anything at all? You stated that Mr. Fisher was angry, attempting to forcibly enter the home. He did enter my home. Smashed the window. The officer nodded, observing the splinters of broken glass on the patio. Yes, ma'am, I understand that. You're not under any scrutiny here. I'm just trying to fill in the blanks. Maxine nodded, pursing her lips. She allowed the deputy to continue. From what I can tell, Mr. Fisher's never been a violent man. He's never come into contact with law enforcement. There's not so much as a speeding ticket on his record. Would you say this is a fair assessment of things? Or was there another side to him? A dark side? A violent streak that was never reported, perhaps? No, not Marty. He was a docile man. The spirit of the 1960s never truly left his heart. Why then? What motivated him? Why did he lash out so violently? A recent argument? Other troubles? Maxine sighed. She hugged close to the blue-eyed man at her side and slipped her hands into his jacket for warmth. He wrapped his long arms around her, gently swaying, as if comforting a child. He planted a kiss on her hairline as they slowly rocked back and forth. She laid her head against his chest, exhausted. He wasn't happy about my leaving him for Rick. The divorce was finalized today. Maybe the reality of my absence was too much for him to handle. Maybe he couldn't let go, couldn't move on. Her lip quivered as she recalled the look on his face as she had stared down the barrel of the shotgun, steadying her aim. She blinked hard, trying to erase the image. Her eyes scanned a row of hard-jawed officers, bathed in the flickering glow of red and blue lights. She knew what they thought. The accusation on each cop's face was as plain as the badge on his shirt. It only took one look at the old man, his spindly fingers and liver-spotted hands smeared with streaks of his own gore, his balding scalp riddled with bloody fingerprints and pieces of decomposing flesh from where he'd held the wound, face twisted in disbelief. Martin had been approaching his 71st birthday. Not a speck of black remained in his thinning silver hair. His once broad shoulders were now bony and thin. His perfect posture had developed a hunch. The officers regarded his elderly corpse with a solemn pity, sizing up the new guy, the pretty boy Maxine Fisher snuggled up against as tears rolled down her cheeks, trailing mascara. Out with the old, in with the new, Maxine overheard a young cop say. She looked up, shocked at the disrespect. She glared at him, eyes narrow and full of scorn. The young cop seemed to feel the weight of her stare and swung his head in the other direction. Maxine scowled, eyes fixed on his back. Rick cleared his throat. <clears throat> Look, if there are no further questions, I think it's time for Maxine to get some rest. Yes, of course, Deputy Jones replied. We'll contact you if we need anything else. Fair enough, Rick said, and the two men shook hands. Yellow tape with the words CRIME SCENE printed in bold capital letters danced in the breeze as the couple walked toward the front door, side by side. Maxine paused, looking down at the corpse that lay in a puddle of excrement and blood. Exposed fat cells and muscle tissue surrounded the gaping wound in Martin's chest. His mouth hung open, colorless lips drawn into a post-mortem frown. Maxine had to close her eyes to keep from crying. Let the peanut gallery make their assumptions. Let everyone stand in judgment. The truth was, she hated to see him so mangled. She hated that her finger had pulled the trigger. Marty had once been a dashing professor, as brilliant as he was handsome. Hounded by the college girls 
envied by colleagues. But age had not been kind to Professor Martin Fisher. He had grown ill, senile, burdensome. She paused on the front porch, sliding her arm away from Rick's waist and turning to face the chaos on the lawn. Police cars lined the curb, some of their lights still flashing. Curious neighbors huddled in garages, pretending they had stepped outside for a smoke. Some peered through gaps in their curtains. She gazed at Rick as he watched the coroner's van slowly inch up the drive. Her mind wandered back to a candlelit dinner they'd had just a few months ago. In the glow of a candle, Rick's eyes shone a silvery blue that nearly took Maxine's breath away. The man was poster boy handsome, right down to the dimple in his chin. Her eyes followed the line of his neck, past the sharp angle of his Adam's apple. She lingered on the flesh of his chest, so tan against the open collar of his button-up shirt. His thick brown hair always seemed to fall perfectly around his scalp, showing no trace of mousse or gel. He was a man of expensive taste, and it showed in the cut of his tailor-made suit. He smiled as he lifted a whiskey sour to his lips. It was a smile that said, I'm attractive, and you know it. Right down to each pearly tooth, I am perfect. Maxine studied her own skin as she nursed a vodka tonic. Her hands were leathery, creased with wrinkles. Spider veins were visible through her spray-on tan, though she had paid a great deal to remove them. There was a bruise near her wrist. She didn't recall getting injured, but she seemed to bruise easier these days, her body growing frail with age. She was reluctantly inching toward 51, and all the Botox in the world couldn't bring back her youth. When Rick was by her side, she saw the way people stared, sneaking glances when they thought her back was turned. Maxine understood how ridiculous it looked, her dating a man in his 20s, but she didn't care. To hell with their stares. He was gorgeous, full of life, just what she needed. I'm leaving him, she said, swirling her drink with a straw. He paused for a moment, donning his very best concerned expression. When Rick feigned interest in her emotions, his eyes shimmered like glass, reflecting the apathy in his soul. It reeked of bad acting, but Maxine didn't mind. She bit her lip and pretended not to notice. She gazed into those silver-blue eyes, knowing the whole thing was a ruse, his interest in her, his attraction, his love. Maxine was loaded. She'd been loaded all her life. That's what appealed to Rick Huntley. Her money. Not her body. Not her soul. But that was okay. None of it bothered Maxine. She felt at ease in his presence. Full of hope. She found comfort in the moments of silence. When Rick would run out of things to say. Having talked about himself for an hour. It was peaceful here sharing appetizers and drinks, admiring his gorgeous face as a cellist serenaded them with Bach. Most importantly, she was away from Martin and his obsessions, his ever-growing darkness and despair. You're leaving him? A divorce? That's a big step, Maxie. Are you sure? She cringed when he called her Maxie. Martin was the only man who had ever called her Maxie and made it sound natural. Her nickname on anyone else's tongue seemed wrong somehow, summoning mental images of feminine hygiene products. Or maybe she was just frightened by a change, the sound of Martin's pet name on Rick's tongue. He's obsessed with the idea of getting old. It's all he talks about, all he thinks about. Mortality, dying. I can't take it anymore, Rick. I can't. Maxine sighed. It felt good to vent, but the words she spoke 
were only the tip of an enormous iceberg hidden just beneath the surface of her marriage. She didn't mention the strange rituals Martin had been performing, the black magic spells he'd collected after long, sleepless nights, flipping through old books in the solitude of his den. She didn't confess to Rick how, one night, as Martin chanted an incantation, the tiny pupils of his eyes began to expand. Darkness bled out from the center of his eye. It covered the brown of his iris, then the whites, turning the entire surface black. It still gave her chills to think about it. She rubbed the goosebumps from her flesh as Rick finished his whiskey sour. Well then, Rick gestured for a waiter with a wave of his hand. A couple more drinks are in order. I propose a toast to our new beginning. Three months later, they stood in front of the courthouse. The sky was a cloudless, brilliant blue. The sunlight poured over the parking lot, warming Maxine and causing a bead of sweat to trickle down her temple. Rick leaned against his silver Mercedes, frowning, arms crossed. I thought it went well, she said, studying his expression. He only snorted in reply, tilting his bronze face toward the sun. I guess, he replied after a moment of silence. What's that supposed to mean? It's over. My marriage is over. Now we can start something real, something new. Rick shrugged, arching one of his manicured eyebrows. He put an awfully big dent in your wallet, babe. I mean, all that money was yours from the start. He didn't deserve a dime of it. Maxine blinked mulling over Rick's words before considering a response. It was true. She'd been generous with Martin. Neither one of them had considered a prenuptial agreement when they tied the knot so many years ago. Maxine's lips curled into a smirk. Don't worry, sugar baby. Your sugar mama's still a millionaire. Rick had to smile then, knowing full well she'd called him out on his self-centered concern. He glanced around the parking lot. Where's your driver? he asked. She checked the time on her diamond-studded watch. He'll be along any minute. You don't have to wait around. I'll see you tonight, he said, opening the Mercedes door. He plucked a speck of lint from the spotless interior, tossing it aside before sliding into the seat. He smoothed his jacket and fiddled with his keys. A hand emerged from the back seat. It snaked around to the front of Rick's face. A dirty rag was smashed against Rick's nose and mouth. The cloth obscured most of his vision, but Maxine saw the shocked expression on his face. He put up a fight, but he was losing stamina as the chloroform took effect. He bucked weakly like a tranquilized bull. Then the writhing subsided, and Rick's head lolled to the side. Maxine peered into the car and saw the top of Martin's face peering over Rick's shoulder from the back seat. His black eyes were fixed on her. Get in, he said. Let's go. Maxine let out a breath she hadn't realized she'd been holding. The crackling of a dry leaf skidding across the asphalt caused her to jump. She looked around. A few cars were parked in a row of spaces parallel to her, but they were empty. The pedestrian stood at the intersection waiting for the walk sign to flash. He faced away from her, and Maxine could see the wires of his earbuds hanging down from his hat. No sign of anyone else. Maxine went around to the passenger side. She opened the door, bent into the car, and with a little huffing and puffing, managed to pull Rick into the passenger seat. She propped him in a sitting position, a thin trail of saliva dripping from the corner of his mouth. He looked like a washed-up model who'd had too many drinks with brunch. She rounded the car once more and climbed into the driver's seat. Then, Maxine reached for Martin. She placed her hand at the back of his head. She kissed him deeply, running her French-tipped fingernails through the wisps of his thin and gray hair. Her heart raced with excitement and love. She had missed him, the feel of him, the smell of him, his voice. 
She started the engine and eased the car into traffic, her right hand locked with his. When Rick's eyes fluttered open, Maxine was staring at him. Hello, lover, she said, mocking a tender greeting. She smiled as he tugged at the restraints. Thick, braided rope had been wound around his ankles, chafing his perfectly tanned skin. Chains rattled against the handcuffs that sliced into the flesh at his wrists. The metal cuffs gripped him so tightly that his arms throbbed with pain. More rope wrapped his midriff, so trying to sit up proved pointless. He thrashed his limbs, and blood trickled beneath the rope. Rick tried to form words, but his tongue only scraped against the dry, gritty rag shoved into his mouth. I'm so glad you're awake. I was hoping you could join us. Rick squirmed helplessly on the cold metal cot. He whimpered, eyes pleading. He managed a muffled grunt, coughing and gagging as he sucked a portion of the cloth down his throat. His eyelids were still heavy, and he fought the urge to close them. The traces of an unknown drug coursed through his veins, making him dizzy. Martin entered the room, his eyes as black as the hallway from which he emerged. The poorly lit den seemed to grow dimmer in his presence. Dark circles framed his eyes, as if he hadn't slept in days. His complexion was ghastly white, contrasted by the shadowy hall. He held a book in his hands that chilled Rick to the core. The cover was a patchwork of different colors and textures. It was roughly sewn, erratic in design. Seams intersected at odd angles on its surface. It was absent of a title. No text could be seen anywhere on the cover or spine. Rick didn't understand why the book with its worn yellow pages was causing his heart to race. Martin flipped it open, and the lights began to flicker. You see, I never wanted a divorce. Not really, Maxine said. Rick jumped at the sound of her voice. He fought against his restraints until his skin was raw. He shook his head as if to deny the reality of his situation. He turned to face Maxine, eyes wide. But I never wanted to lose Martin either, she continued. Her lips formed a guilty smile. She paced the floor, forcing his eyes to follow her. He came up with the whole idea. All I had to do was find him a younger body. She paused for a moment to study Rick's reaction. His breathing became frantic, nostrils flaring with panic. I was only interested in your body, baby. I told you that from the start. Martin chanted. It was a low, rhythmic incantation at first, but it soon increased in volume. Rick wished he could cover his ears to block it out. The air around Martin seemed to swirl and pulse, like a heat wave permeating from his flesh. Rick saw Maxine douse a rag in chloroform. He bucked wildly. The chains cut deeper, ropes digging in. She pressed the rag to his face as he fought her in vain. Rick Huntley's world went black for the second time that day. Maxine could only imagine what happened when he awoke. They'd given him enough drugs to keep him unconscious during the ritual. He was sound asleep as they gathered the evidence, stacked Martin's collection of black magic books into a box, and placed them in the trunk of Rick's car. They had wiped the metal cot and folded it, tucked it away in a dark corner of the basement. They took the ropes and chains, leaving the house as it had once been, the hideaway of a brilliant if somewhat aberrant, old professor. They left him there, on the floor of Martin's den, with only the dim light of a small desk lamp to greet him when he finally came to. What had happened when he awoke on Martin's antique needlepoint rug, surrounded by dusty bookcases? Did Rick Huntley still feel like Rick Huntley at all? Was his first reaction to scoff at the dreary room? with its lack of designer decor? How long before he noticed his liver-spotted hands, the bushy gray hair on his arms, 
Did he look in the mirror, seeing the face of an old man, and immediately understand his curse? Or did he cry as he stared into those tired brown eyes, set deep into the sockets of a wrinkled face, unable to comprehend what had happened? Whatever the case, he had found Martin's keys, gotten into Martin's car, and drove home. Rick had stomped up the path of his quiet suburban property and pounded on the door with Martin's fists. He had exhausted himself working a branch back and forth until it finally pulled away from the bushes. He wheezed, reared back, and swung the branch, shattering the bay window. The frailness of his body seemed to catch him off guard, and he stumbled, landing in the wreckage. Had it terrified him to feel his old knees buckle? To fall backwards in the glass as Maxine emerged, staring down the barrel of a gun? No. Maxine could recall his worst moment of terror. She had seen it. How the color drained from his face as he stared, wild-eyed, at his former body, which stood in the window beside Maxine, watching her with quiet approval. The handsome face that used to be his with somebody else behind it. Maxine eyed her victim up and down, and although she knew the man inside Martin's body was no longer the man she loved, her finger hesitated on the trigger. She had to bite her lip hard when she finally pressed down, painting the porch with the old man's blood. Maxine shook her head, pushing the memory away. She didn't want to think about it, The dirty deed was done. Months and months of planning had paid off. Still, the sight of Martin's body had disturbed her, seeing the life drain out of his eyes. Or maybe it wasn't the corpse, or the blood and guts that had bothered her most. Maybe it was the finality of it all. They had done it. Martin Fisher was inside a younger man's body, looking at Maxine with brand new eyes. But what did he see when he looked at her now? Did her flesh seem wrinkled, pressed up against his? Did her figure sag? She watched a group of neighbors gathered at the curb. Her eyes lingered on a thin, fit blonde. Maybe it's time I traded in for a newer model, too. Martin looked at her, his once brown eyes now a sparkling blue. He scrunched his brow, shook his head, and said, Don't be ridiculous, Maxie. You look great. You are absolutely in your prime. He drew close to her, softly kissing her cheek, trailing warm breath down her neck. Shall we go inside and celebrate, my dear? His lips curled into a familiar grin. It was a smile that warmed Maxine's heart. Martin's face had changed, but he was the same man somehow. In his eyes, she saw a spark of attraction that had been absent in Rick's loveless gaze. He squeezed her hand the same way he'd been squeezing it for years, leading her through the doorway of their new home together. She said, I love you, Martin Fisher. I always have. I don't know what I would do without you. He closed the door behind them, sliding the lock into place. I don't suppose you'll ever have to find out, he replied. But just for show, I think you better call me Rick. We all love a good spooky mystery, don't we? Today, let's join Cthulhu Doo and his friends as they find themselves with a certain evildoer that might just get away with it, despite those blasted kids. Ignoring safety in numbers, Ted and Taffy have gone off on their own to investigate things together as usual, <laughs> leaving Wilma, Cthulhu, and Stony to their own devices. But it may just be more than they can deal with. By the end, you'll understand how important it is to simply see clearly. Like, wow, Cthulhu, I've got a full-on case of the munchies right now. Uh-huh. Re-roo, Rony. Like, I could totally go for something way tasty right now. Well, after you spent all day in the back of the van again, I'm not surprised. As much as you smoked, you probably think the dog can talk and see ghosts everywhere. 
Wait, man. Cthulhu can't talk. I can't, Rony. <laughs> oh, good. I thought I was losing it, man. <sighs> Having conversations with the dog again. Hey, I smell something cooking. Whoa, it smells like really groovy. Let's check it out, Cthulhu. Wait, you two. It might be a trap. <laughs> Zoinks! Well, let's see what I caught today. Oh, no. Like, we're trapped, Cthulhu. <laughs> a bit scrawny, but I could probably make something nice with his liver. I'm not sure about this thing. Oh, no. It's like the cannibal. And he's got us totally trapped in this cage. <laughs> I'll have to go get my knives and cooking equipment. Now's my chance. I need to get Stony and Cthulhu out of that locked cage while the cannibal is in the next room. Oh no! My glasses. I can't see anything without my glasses or contacts. Like, hurry up, Wilma. Cthulhu and I are about to be Mr. Cannibal's next meal. I'm trying, but I can't find my glasses. Like, I thought you switched to contacts. I did, but my contact prescription expired. And the law here in the U.S. says that I have to get a new prescription written every year to buy new lenses. Even though my vision hasn't changed in 15 years. I had to wear my glasses today. Have the like, you need to use simple contacts. It's the most convenient way to get your prescription renewed and stock up on your contact lenses. But my prescription just expired, and I haven't had the time or money to get a new exam. And the local eye doctor wants $250 for the exam since I don't have insurance. See, like, that's the best part. Instead of an annual appointment taking hours to schedule, drive to, wait for the doctor, and then finally get your exam, like, you can take their five-minute vision test online. And, like, as long as your eyes look healthy, one of their licensed ophthalmologists will extend your prescription. Wow, that does sound easy. But I only like my brand, and like I said, I don't have a lot of money to spend. I mean, we just drive around solving creepy mysteries for free in a beat-up old van. I seriously don't know how we have the money for anything. It's why we all wear the same clothes all the time. Well, Simple Contacts offers every brand of lenses, and their prices are, like, totally unbeatable. The prescription's just $20, and they have some of the best prices on Contacts. And shipping's totally free. Best of all, since you listen to the Wicked Library, you get like $30 off your first Simple Contacts order when you visit simplecontacts.com slash wicked and use the promo code WICKED. Well, that should do it. Fava beans, check. Chianti, check. Now, for a nice, fresh liver. Zoinks! Like, he's coming back! Have you found your glasses yet? Yes, but they're broken. <laughs> See now, kitties? Don't end up like Wilma. <laughs> Get your contacts from Simple Contacts. Getting your eye exam in contacts doesn't have to be a horror story. Just take your quick, self-guided vision test from your phone or computer. It's reviewed by a licensed doctor within 24 hours, and you receive a renewed prescription to reorder your favorite brand of contacts. And if you have an unexpired prescription, you can upload a photo or put in your doctor's info to order your contacts in minutes. Nothing scary about it. Not only does it save you a wicked amount of time and money, with exams costing only $20, standard shipping free, and unbeatable prices on all brands of contacts. But when you visit simplecontacts.com slash wicked and use the promo code wicked, you'll get $30 off your order. 
While it's not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, which you still need occasionally, Simple Contacts takes the terror out of renewing your prescription and getting your contacts. One thing we can all agree shouldn't be something to be afraid of. Order yours today and get $30 off at simplecontacts.com slash wicked and use the promo code WICKED. <laughs> So today my guest is Lindsay Goddard, and we just listened to your story, Out With The Old, which is uh, disturbing in so many great ways. And uh, obviously we wanted to <laughs> take you. an opportunity to talk a little bit about the story and, and about your writing path and that sort of thing. So what was the what, what made this one of the stories that you really wanted to tell? Because I mean, I think that all of our listeners know there's a lot of time and effort that goes into writing a story, not just writing the first draft, but polishing it over and over again to get it to the point where it can stand on its own. So what made this a story that's made it worth that much effort for you? Um, well, it was probably around 2012 that with a lot of my stories, I started wanting to put more of a love story with the horror. Um, I kind of took it as a challenge because it's not something that happens a lot. Um, just infusing that underlying love story, and I thought it was a great idea that you can't always um, look at somebody's relationship and and just judge what's going on. Right. You want to look. You want to look at an older woman with a younger man and make your own judgments. But uh, that was kind of what brought the idea to life. Uh, there's more lurking beneath there. Yeah, it's and it's interesting the way that you you wrote the story because. You kind of do get that feeling going through that, you know, she is, she does have this ulterior motive that she just wants to be with the younger man. She's tired of being with this guy that's older and become burdensome and et cetera, et cetera. And then as we get kind of into the the thrust of the story, you, you find out that this has kind of all been a ploy and, uh, you know, she's kind of on board with preserving his life and transferring his, his consciousness to a new body. Um, kind of handpicked who she wanted and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so, And there's the, the thing that I think I found the most interesting about the story is her reaction when she actually has to pull the trigger, you know, that it, it's, she knows it's not him, but it's, it's still difficult for her. So, you know, you have that emotional quandary. I mean, let's not get it wrong. Neither of these people are good people, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of the same it's uh, the same old thing with the zombie tales. It's been done before. How do I kill this person, even though I know they're not that per person? But it, it never gets old because it would, if you put yourself in that situation, it would be a terrible ordeal to go through, whether you knew that person was inside that body or not. Right. It, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I think that many of us have had the situation where we've had an, an older pet that has to be put down and you know that, you know, they're suffering and, and they're not really there anymore but it's it's still extremely difficult and i would think you have to multiply that by many layers of multitude when it comes to your spouse or someone that you love or care about right exactly so what was your biggest struggle with this with this story what was something that you had to work to overcome because i think that every every great story has kind of its own baggage that it comes with and, and things that you have to work through to get it to its final form I think my main concern um, was that it wouldn't be enough horror. I Previously, I had been writing things that had more shock value. A lot of my stories would just pack that punch like, oh, wow, you know, she went there. And I was trying to branch out into tying in, you know, more of the human emotion and human condition into my stories. And um, I remember wondering, how are my already established readers going to respond to this? Is there enough, you know, violence or gore? Um, did I did I amp up the black magic enough? But I really, in the end, when I read over it, I, I liked the subtlety. And I, I think it kind of, the subtlety helped the surprise, um, to help to surprise the reader at the end, because 
you know, hopefully they didn't see it coming. I obviously knew it was. <laughs> yeah, I just, I was quite the shock value I used to have. Yeah. No, I mean, we, I mean, obviously we do a lot of different types of stories on the Wicked Library. That's kind of been the fun for me when I took over from Nelson is that, you know, I kind of came to horror as a fresh thing. And, and I found that there was, there was a lot of complexity and there were a lot of sh- subgenres. So, you know, part of my path through the, the first couple of seasons was just kind of to try to explore all the different genres. And because, you know, it, it's, it's just like anything, you know, you're not always in the mood for the same type of thing. Um, and, you know, if it's well written, the jump scares can sometimes work and, and the gore can sometimes work. And, and, you know, the stories that have a lot of layer and complexity to it can sometimes work. Um, so it's, it's always been kind of the, the, the fun experiment to introduce the audience to new types of stories that they haven't heard before. And, uh, you know, try to keep the variety there and, and, and get a chance to enjoy all the different subtleties that you can have in a complex story like this one. Yes, and I've always loved that about the Wicked Library because there is a great balance um, of the different types of horror. And uh, uh, as a listener, I appreciate it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have so many listeners that, especially the folks that stick around to listen to this part of the show, that want to write or are writers themselves. And I think it's always interesting to get the input from uh, other writers. And more importantly, as a horror writer, it's important to kind of steep yourself in lots of different types of stories because I think it helps you become a stronger writer. And, uh, you know, if you only expose yourself to one thing, you become very one note. I always say I read everything from Richard Lehman to Robert McCammon. I mean, from one extreme to the other, because I would get tired to always read the same thing. And I feel like that's why my writing probably goes through phases as well, because it helps keep me excited about it. I wouldn't, I couldn't picture myself doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. That would get dull. I know it would. So how many drafts of this story did it take to get it in the form that we heard today? Oh, quite a few. I originally wrote it in 2012 and I, I edited it a few times before submitting it. It ended up being in an anthology called Mistresses of the Macabre. And then it sat for a couple of years and I revamped it. I subbed it again to another anthology that's a, a little press called Wardleberry Press. Um, and I've just always really loved the story from the very, very beginning. And I swear this, I always wanted it to be an audio production. Something about it I just felt would really work well with the audio form. And so I'm going to admit it went through a couple more drafts before I sent it in to you because I wanted it to be perfect and I wanted it to be on the show. <laughs> so yeah, it's been around and around, but I think it's only gotten better in the process. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one of the things is it, it each successive draft, I think you get to a point where towards the end, you kind of know that it, it's, it's come into its form and it's, it's kind of that inevitable thing where you can't really explain it to somebody, but you just kind of feel and know, okay, this is the draft that's right. Yeah, Exactly. So what came first for you with the story when you started writing it and, and, and as you were adapting it, was it the characters or the situation, uh, uh, the plot of the story, or, or what really spoke to you to kind of pull you into that world? It was definitely the plot. Uh, like I said, I had been thinking a lot about the different types of relationships. Um, you know, the old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover. Sometimes the more you get to know people, their relationship is not at all what you at first thought it was. Mm-hmm. And so the idea really all stemmed from there. Uh, Maxine and the other characters, they all came from that original plot idea. So of the characters in the story, which do you most identify with? Well, definitely Maxine, the main character, because... As a woman, you know, I'm only 34, but I can already, you know, you watch your body <laughs> aging and you, you wonder, you know, am I still beautiful to this person? But I think uh, their relationship in this story is so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the fact that, you know, and at the end, she's looking at the younger woman and saying, maybe I should trade in for a newer model. He says, you know, not to worry about that yet. And um, I really, I just loved that part when I put it in. Yeah, that's a great, that was a great line. I thought that really spoke to who he is at his core. You know I mean? Like it's it's really difficult when you have a story like this because you have two characters. They're not nice people, but there's this underlying sweetness. You can kind of identify with why they feel the way they do and what's driving them. And I think, you know, like you said, as we get older, 
Um, you know, I mean, I'm 46 this year and, and I've gotten to the point now where I've started to think, you know, I'm probably, there's probably fewer days ahead than there are behind. And you, you start to think about the things that you've wanted to do with your life. And I can certainly identify with getting to 71 and looking back at, you know, who you were when you were younger and, and just, there's a desperation there that you go through when you realize that there isn't all the time in the world. You only have so much time to do these things. Uh, so it's always interesting when you have a character or characters that are flawed like these ones, but that you can also see, you can kind of identify with because you can see the intent is good, not necessarily the execution, but the intent there, you know, that they both have is good. So it's, it's always fun to explore that type of story with those kind of characters. Yes. But like you said earlier, they're not good people. Right. And you, you shouldn't steal people's bodies. No. But we can certainly understand why they why they did. Right. This isn't a how to, folks. <laughs> so, so, what surprised you most about the story? Was there was there anything when you were writing that surprised you? Um, not so much in the plot or characters themselves, but uh, in my writing, I think at that point I was beginning to really take more of a critical eye to my writing than I had in the past, mm-hmm. and. I began to notice that I really just like to use the same words and phrases over and over again. And that's why editors are invaluable to me because I won't notice myself doing it. And I've talked to other authors who are the same. Yeah. We just really, really grow attached <laughs> to a certain way of yes. saying things. And um, I know in this story in particular, there was a few uh, words that were popping back up and just had to be edited out of there. And with the story itself, though, it, it really went very smoothly I was surprised because I do usually hit a point where I struggle almost every story I hit some sort of wall uh, but this one I just don't really have any memory of hitting that wall it, it just really all came together somehow yeah it's 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 fun when that happens uh, the, the characters kind of take over and uh, I've heard a lot of authors talk about you know it being almost like dictation in some at some points yeah almost a miracle <laughs> So what attracts you to writing horror in speculative fiction? What What's the draw to, to this particular genre for you? I've always been drawn to it as long as I can remember. Um, I was the youngest sibling in my family, and, you know, my family loved to watch horror movies. And I was more than welcome to go to the other room. I could have went uh, and used one of the other TVs or played off in the other room, but I always sat there and watched them. I remember watching The Changeling and Pet Cemetery at a really young age and I used to draw pictures of the crypt keeper in elementary school and then then I found R.L. Stein and Goosebumps and from there on it was just determined that I was going to write horror. That's very cool very cool so it's always been a draw it's always been something that you've kind of felt an affinity for. Yes and I've discussed it with other people you know what makes a certain type of person drawn towards this genre and for myself I really don't know what it is in particular, I just always have been. You know, it, it's one of the conversation topics that comes up a lot in, in our discussions, you know, with, with authors is I think a lot of people get asked the question, not in a fun way, you know, kind of like, well, why do you like this stuff? People have kind of this stereotype that horror authors are twisted and disturbed and strange individuals. And for the most part, everybody I run across, they're very well balanced. They're very well adjusted. They're some of the kindest most giving people that I talk to. And I think I say it all the time. I think it's because we get all that dark stuff out. You you get all the detritus out and it leaves you a little bit more well-balanced. I think. I believe that is true. Um, You know, I rarely watch the news because it does really bother me when there's terrible things going on in the world, but often my response to it is to turn to my computer and start typing something out. So it is, it's like exercising the demons almost. Yeah, it kind of gives you an environment where you control that world and and you can punish the people that need to be punished and explore the possible solutions that wouldn't necessarily work in the real world. Yeah, and you know, that brings to mind uh, years ago when I released my first short story collection, I had a good friend of mine, she wanted to read it and I warned her, I said, well, there's some crazy stuff in there. (laughs) And so she read it right away, she finished it and I said, okay, you know, what do you think of me now? Do you think I'm crazy? And she said, well, Lindsay, I mean, the bad guys almost always get what they deserve. You know, it's not like, (laughs) 
she said, you know, in my stories, she found them inspiring because I'm creating an evil almost to uh, stomp it out. And that's not always because, like I said, I don't want to write the same thing over and over again. But uh, she found the good in my crazy stories for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that element to it. And it's it's something that when you have an enlightened reader like your friend, they kind of pick up on that, that you're creating this evil, but you're also creating a mechanism to get rid of it, uh, which doesn't always exist in our real world, which is why the news can, you know, very much be more disturbing than some of the more disturbing horror stories that I've read. Now, I mean, I guess it could be argued that in this story, we have a couple of characters that end up having a happy ending after doing some terrible things, but the character that is being replaced and is having, you know, having his life stolen from him is not one of the better characters that you're ever going to encounter. He, he's, he, you almost kind of feel you know, you get a little bit of comeuppance there, buddy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it wouldn't have been fun to kill him if we grew attached to him. When you watch a horror movie and there's just a character that's unbearable, and I always turn to the person next to me and say, well, their time is limited, right? <laughs> if we're creating a character that's unbearable, we're obviously just going to love it when they get, you know, their head chopped off by Jason or right. what have you. Exactly, exactly. So... With with you saying that you have this long history in horror, um, is there a story or a book? It doesn't necessarily have to be horror, but um, and something that you you read that kind of changed the way that you look at the world and, and place in it as a writer? Um, there have been a few books like that. I would say uh, just in the vein of horror, since uh, we're discussing horror. Right. Uh, Clive Barker's Books of Blood specifically volume one because that's the one I remember most clearly um that really I think I can I can blame Clive Barker's books of blood volume one for the fact that I'm addicted to writing short stories and I'm terrible at putting out a novel Mm -hmm. because um his short stories just blew me away um I had never really to be honest I had never really been too big of a fan of his films Mm -hmm. And so I, my expectations maybe weren't high, but uh, Books of Blood, yeah, just an amazing collection. The short story is kind of a, a beautiful form, and I've always loved, even before I kind of started to get into horror, I've, I've always loved the short story. I mean, you know, Neil Gaiman and Clive Barker and Stephen King, I mean, some, some masters at Ray Bradbury, some masters at the short story. And just, you know, there's there's something, I don't know, there's something really cool about going on a journey that you can finish, you know, within, within one sitting and and for it to have kind of all the complexities and really leave you thinking afterwards, sometimes even more than a novel can, you know? Yeah. It's, and you know, it's, um, I take it as a compliment really that some authors say they won't even bother with a short story. It's just too much to try to fit a full plot and a full character development into such a short word count. Uh, for some reason, I'm very comfortable with it. It's what I've excelled at so far. But, you know, you mentioned uh, Ray Bradbury's shorts, and he was the other one I thought about mentioning. Uh, Clive Barker's Books of Blood won him over a little bit, but Fahrenheit 451, that book, when I read it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just one that always sticks in my mind. It's just, it was a, an amazing book, and if I had to name my favorite novel, that would probably, on most days, be it, but... <laughs> It changes from day to day, yeah, of course. Absolutely. No, that's really cool. That's that's a really good choice too. So what does a good story have to do to scare you? What what's I think horror, you know, this is always a fun question for me because horror is very personal and what scares one person may not necessarily scare another. Everybody kinda has their own baggage that they bring with them into a story. So so yeah, what does a what does a good story have to do to scare you to or to get under your skin? Um, well it's it's odd because I want to say stories where there's the human monster and it's showing uh, the terrible side of humanity because those really do get under my skin. Mm-hmm. But as far as just plain spooking me, I will go for like an atmospheric, I would call it horror. Um, mm-hmm. I would say Ramsey Campbell's collection, Alone with the Horror. It was just a collection of his work throughout the years. I think it was called Alone with the Horrors or Alone with the Horror. But I remember reading that book and my kids come up to me and, you know, I'm jumping out of my chair. I try to figure out how how is he doing this to my brain? And it's just like that suspense. It's just like fully enthralling you and wrapping you up in that story. And that I always really excelled at. 
yeah, that underlying yeah. dread that just kind of grows and, and and continues to stick with you throughout the piece. Yeah, like a growing lump in your throat. Right. <laughs> so what do you have going on? What are you working on now going forward? I know you've you've been on the show before, obviously, um, and it's it's fun to have you back. So so what's uh, what's in the future? What do you have working on and what do you have that's that's coming up that's taking up your time these days? Well, right now, uh, who knows when it'll come out? I mean, who knows what the future holds? But uh, I'm working on writing a collection of four novellas that I'm hoping to tie them together, uh, sort of like Stephen King does with Castle Rock, you know, maybe just have them all centered at the same location with some of the same characters interwoven throughout them. Uh, because I excel at short fiction, like I said, mm-hmm. and I've been putting all this pressure on myself to write a novel, but I have so many different ideas I want to do that I thought, well, what if I take four of them, make them novella length, and then put them together into a larger volume? So that's what I'm working on currently, and we'll see what happens with it. Yeah, I love that. You know, and I've I've had a few authors recently. It seems like maybe this is a trend because um, I've had a few other authors that have talked about that same type of thing. And that's kind of where my interest lies, you know, for my own writing is in the direction of stories that can stand alone, but that interconnect with each other so that, you know, you're getting kind of uh, a larger world and you're getting kind of this common thread that ties between and, you know, for your reader that, that pays attention from story to story, they're getting kind of a larger arc as well. But I, I do love, you know, still paying homage to the short story that, can stand on its own two feet without anything else. And of course, you know, novella is just a, 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 a short story that's on steroids. So I think that's really cool. And, and I'll be right. excited to see what you do with it. Yeah. It's the best of both worlds. When you get the, um, like you said, you, you feel like you're um, revisiting the same place, but it, each piece stands on its own. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Very cool. So what's the best way for fans that are, you know, enthralled with your story today and want to find more of your work, where's the, I know you have a ton of stuff out there. So where's the best place for them to go to kind of tap into that and find the other works that you have? Uh, well, a good starting point would be my official website and that's lindsaybethgoddard.com. Uh, I've also been trying to tweet more. Um, maybe if everyone starts following me, I will remember to keep getting on Twitter because <laughs> it is a really great platform. Yeah. And on there, um, well, when I originally signed up for Twitter, I didn't know that you could never change your name. So I am Lindsay Beth God with two G's. So you can find me, Lindsay Beth, G-O-D-D. Very nice. On Twitter. And I'd love to meet up with you there. Excellent. I guess the, the, the last question I'll ask you is, uh, what do you have, what do you, what, what's going to be the next story for the Wicked Library? Is there anything that, uh, that you have that we can bring on next season or anything that you're working on that you think might be a good fit for us? Absolutely. I've had an idea for a while uh, of an original piece that I really want to write for for this show. So now that you've asked me, um, yeah, I'm going to have to get that done. Well, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, because I'm sure people will want to hear a lot more from you. It was a it was a really fun story. And, and like you said, it was really well suited for audio. Uh, I could tell that, you know, you wrote it with the with the ear in mind. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. And um, we definitely uh, will look forward to having another piece from you in the near future. And uh, folks should go and check out your website and pick up some of your other work. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I've always been a fan of the show. So every time I get to come back on here, I'm just I'm like a fangirl over here. I just love it. So thanks a lot, Dan. Oh, you're very welcome. And, you know, I love your work, too, even whenever Nelson was running the show. And, uh, you know, I get to listen to some of the, the stories there just kind of as a listener and as a fan. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's always been, uh, I've always been excited about the opportunity to eventually talk to you whenever we had a show with one of your stories on. So I appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we made it a reality. It's awesome. Excellent. thank you for listening to today's episode of the wicked library the wicked library is a ninth story studios production ninthstory.com if you enjoy the show please consider supporting us on patreon 
at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Or you can also do that at our website if you like. You can be a part of keeping the show coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get Wicked Fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover, created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information on today's episode, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Maxine to find you. (laughs) 